0: Utopia is very much in the eye of the beholder, and if that beholder is Big Brother, Utopia is probably a society where everyone does what they are told. The quarter months of the year tend to be the time of year when I grab a hot drink, turn on the fireplace and TV, and settle into the couch for some sci-fi marathons with my cats. This year I was joined by my wife Sarah, who is pretty new to science fiction, so I've been exposing her to classics like Doctor Who and Star Trek, and one of the episodes we watched was the classic Star Trek episode, The Return of the Archons, where the Enterprise arrives at the planet Beta-3 to investigate the century-old disappearance of the USS Archon. On it they find an idyllic civilization whose friendly, if rather creepy, people seem modestly primitive perhaps 19th or early 20th century Earth Analogues, and welcome them in time for the festival they are soon-to-be travelers arriving to attend. The hour dawns for the festival to start, and everyone goes nuts, breaking and pillaging their town and its other inhabitants. Then come the morning, like clockwork, suddenly start acting normal again, or at least their normal, which is creepy friendly, and hailing Landru, their local savior, king and god. No reason is ever given for the violent festival beyond it being Landru's will, but possibly from the script being reworked, the episode was originally one of the three Roddenberry offered the studio as a candidate for the pilot episode of Star Trek. The sudden crazy Porge riot pops up in sci-fi a lot I've noticed, often as some sort of release valve for otherwise peaceful civilizations. My favorite example was the parody episode of Rick and Morty, Look Who's Porgy Now, and we'll discuss that notion of societal release vows later in the episode. This also happens to be one of the four episodes where Captain Cook talks a computer to death, in this case a computer programmed by Landrieu thousands of years before that had assumed Landrieu's identity, and is an example of an artificial intelligence running a civilization. Its objective is to create a peaceful society, putting good above evil and so on, and achieves this goal through some equivalent of telepathy and brainwashing. This is an example of what we, here on SFIA, call a post-discontent society, a term coined by one of our editors, Jerry Gorn, while we're working our script for one of the episodes in our Post-Scarcity Civilization series, and is essentially the antithesis of a Post-Scarcity version of Utopia. Post-Scarcity civilizations are those that have no scarcity of resources, though in the interest of plausibility for discussion inside a finite universe, we define on the show as a civilization who has such an abundance of a given human need that getting access to it causes no serious anxiety in people it's pretty relative and can be specific to a resource. For instance, humans need oxygen to live, but we are essentially post-scarcity in regard to oxygen. The supply is not infinite, but no one worries about us running out, and for good reason. Humans have many needs, including the mental and emotional, not just the physiological, and we often use Maslow's hierarchy of needs as our benchmark for saying that a post-scarcity civilization would be one that satisfies all the basic needs, and also many needs higher on the pyramid. The condition is not an infinite supply of resources, only that acquiring the resources is not a difficulty and running out is not a serious concern. But this is where we have to distinguish between post-scarcity and post-discontent civilizations. Post-discontent folks don't worry about scarcity even when there is good reason to, a society where everyone is either programmed or or narcotics to make them happy, docile, productive and obedient, whether they live in filth and eat moldy bread or just live in tiny bare clean boxes. Overcoming scarcity and not minding it are very different goals, and they bring about very different societies. Our planet of Beta-3, ruled over by Landru, is another example, and indeed one of our great cases because its portrayal is that of peace and plenty in a very genuine sense. We don't get many details on the planet but every impression is that, except when the festival is going on, for whatever reason it is going on, there is indeed peace and plenty. That's not really surprising when you think about it, there are many reasons to object to any tyranny, let alone one so complete that even the desire to think about overthrowing it does not exist, but the odds are it will tilt to being law-abiding and well-ordered, so you might need to brainwash folks to submit to your rule, but not into needing to believe they are safe from criminals or starvation. On the other hand, a truly abusive regime that just views people as cheap labor it can squeeze for product would presumably like the brainwashing option though even then it is likely to maintain things to be pretty clean and healthy. Sick and starving workers may be a common theme in oppressive empires and science fiction, but efficiency means you maintain your workers same as you maintain your machines, in good function. Half-starved citizens living in mold-covered shanties is not a recipe for productivity. Indeed, your only motivation for keeping your workforce that way, unless you simply are even more sadistic than you are selfish, is if you're of the opinion that the more hopeless they're lot, the less likely they are to rebel. And indeed there is some reason to think that might be true. However, it's not the case for a post discontent society, because they don't need fear of punishment as the principal method of enforcement, they are specifically civilizations that through technology or technique keep their people content with their lot, rather than afraid rebelling would get them horribly killed. Such being the case, there is no motivation to keep people in squabble, where it's more expensive to do that, There is no criminal element trashing our neighborhoods and there is a motivation to make each citizen as productive as possible, which means in good health. So a post-discontent society is probably a clean and cheerful place, and is one example of how they can be easily confused with a post-scarcity one, indeed it can be a blurry distinction too, since contentment can come from simply being an aesthetic culture. On the flip side, a genuine post-scarcity society can be a pretty bad place full of hedonism and greed. Same as there can be a very blurry line between adopting a culture and indoctrination into it, if you are meeting everyone's basic needs in the name of efficiency, and they are content, versus meeting everyone's needs through abundance, and they are content, the distinction can be hard to pinpoint and in some cases might not exist. There's another problem though, science fiction shows us dreary future cities with oppressed inhabitants worked to death because it makes a good setting for stories. But if you are high tech, you need folks working 12 hour days, 7 days a week, like you need a raincoat on a sunny afternoon in the Sahara Desert. You've got robots doing your grunt work. You do not need peasants in burlap smocks hoeing turnips. ups You need a skilled operator running a tractor, or programming and repairing the robot who does so. One might argue you don't really want smart and free people wandering around because they could cause damage to your empire, but uneducated, sick and half-starved folks can do a lot of damage too like breaking your complex machines on accident, and again the fear there is that an educated populace might turn on its masters and figure out a way to organize a successful rebellion. The point of a post-discontent society is that there's no one looking to rebel, they are content. You don't need thugs in jackboots stepping on the oppressed or busting into people's homes to find their stash of illegal books full of dangerous ideas. Though that might be debatable, as your civilization might be built on some big lie, like you're a eternal city that will go on forever, while in secret your supplies of raw materials and fuel are dwindling every year, and to avoid folks thinking on that, you might ban any book mentioning the laws of thermodynamics and entropy. More common in science fiction is banning ideological knowledge, like hiding books on human rights and democracy but a tyrannic post-discontent society probably isn't all that worried about its folks discussing democracy and demanding a vote. Happy citizens have no reason to rebel. We, ourselves, might object, most of us living in countries with elections and who have had elections for generations, but none of those formed because the prior leader right before that was doing a great job, except in rare cases where they wore and were worried their successor would not, so set themselves up to be replaced by elections rather than a new tyrant, Revolutions do not happen in a vacuum. This raises two big questions, first, why are they so satisfied? What is making them post-discontent? Is it drugs and brainwashing or is it something else? We can ignore the case where it is genuine post-scarcity, that people are content because they really do have access to the Horn of Plenty, but there is a big grey region. So that's the second question, are the powers that be actually doing a good job? Humans are innately hierarchical, and odds are good that many alien civilizations would be too, small groups like Pax need leaders, the chief or alpha male etc. But specialist societies are very interdependent on their members carrying out various specialized tasks, and that requires coordination and when you get big enough, folks whose specialty is coordinating the coordinators and convincing the other citizens that the coordination is good. One of the big appeals in science fiction to have a computer run the show is that it is logical and without bias. And most of the arguments against tend to be rather emotional and straw man. The computer isn't overthrown because it's a computer, it's overthrown because it was doing a bad job. We don't know that a computer would do a bad job, just that sci-fi writers often say they would for varying and sometimes contradictory reasons. One rather flimsy reason often offered is that the computer leader just didn't understand human nature, either our indomitable spirit or our capacity to act in unpredictable ways. That argument might have been more convincing to early TV audiences, but it's much less convincing to modern audiences who have seen how much AIs actually can learn, model, and predict. A vastly powerful supercomputer, capable of modeling human brains, would fully understand not only the indomitable human spirit, but the hacks that would allow one to dominate it or at least keep it a content and cooperative citizen. And even if the leader didn't have enough data to predict which citizens would turn out irredeemably rebellious, it would certainly know the early indicators of a citizen potentially on that path, and know the optimal preemptive actions to take. But in a sense we already live in a society run by computers. We have computers capable of predicting the weather, and future ones may do it far better, and we could place it in charge of saying when we should schedule flights or ground them, when we should plant crops or wait a week or more, and most would obey, except for a few stubborn folks we would mostly roll our eyes at. Admittedly nobody likes the idea of being bossed around by a machine, but then we don't much like the idea of being bossed around by human authorities either. We may be heavily influenced by our biology towards certain forms of or leadership, well, we can and do repress our hardwired behaviors on many things, we keep the concept of someone in charge because it generally beats the alternative. In our Star Trek episode we mentioned near the beginning, the real objection to Landry would seem to be that the machine is just brainwashing or psychically dominating folks to be happy cattle, and in this case we don't care if the cage is messy or gilded, if the bird in it is starving or fat, it's still in a cage those people aren't being allowed to be people, and it's not the same as a society that just had harsh punishment for bad behavior, it's one with no free will. So we will put the qualifier on a post-discontent society that their human, or alien nature and will, is being subverted, repressed, or removed in some fashion, and far beyond the sort of basic background indoctrination in any society and in that episode it is apparently from telepathic domination and parallel cases like hive minds, such as the Borg from Star Trek, that snatch and absorb people against their will. There are some folks shown to be immune to the effect too, and we don't get the details but in some parallel stories people might begin to develop immunity over time. If telepathy, they might have folks who are immune to telepathy develop, if drugs, and immunity or resistance to that drug, and so on. Which makes sense but only on first inspection. Thousands of generations under some influence and evolving an immunity to it seems logical, but that's not really how evolution works. A given new trait first has to have some simple means to emerge and provide a benefit. Developing an immunity to telepathy would be a big jump one would think, but also, what is the actual survival advantage? If you live in a society that is brainwashed, From an evolutionary perspective there's no great automatic advantage to you or your descendants in immunity, especially given that you're not in nature, you're in a civilization run by thinking beings, and presumably ones with a ruthless streak. They don't consider your trait an advantage, to them at least, and having a trait that makes a powerful being want to hunt you to extinction is not a survival advantage. We see this line of reasoning used with a civilization preyed on by the Wraith in Stargate Atlantis who sucked the life out of humans for food. That civilization, the Hofen people, created a drug that killed many of them but left the remainder of them poisonous to feed on, and reasoned that the Wraith would obviously leave them alone rather than die trying to feed on them. The Wraith did the actual obvious thing, and wiped them out to make sure no one else got that drug. Now we might hypothesize an exception, like if your masters ate people by luring them in with telepathy and just ate the first to come. Folks with a resistance to that would be less likely to be eaten, and their descendants thus more survivable. However, it ignores that people eating an intelligent species probably aren't stupid either, and would guess that would be a long-term effect and act accordingly, such as periodically luring everyone in, killing everyone who didn't show up, and eating the ones who were tardy, then the evolutionary advantage isn't immunity to telepathy, but greater susceptibility to it, and indeed many crops are cultivated to be more tasty, and many plants rely on being eaten to spread their seed. That is also a sci-fi trope, the apparent utopia whose people are like happy cattle and turn out to be exactly that, like with the Eloy and Morlocks of H.G. Wells' classic novel The Time Machine. It's a nice story idea, folks who act like happy cattle, and all literally cattle. But not very logical. Humans make for an awful full of livestock, we pretty much have every trait a rancher or farmer would find disadvantageous in a food source, not the least of which being our long maturation period. Assuming they really had a taste for humans though, technology offers the option of cloning meat up in tanks, which we're already getting pretty good at, or genetically engineering humans far stupider and more docile with faster maturation times, especially since our giant calorie-hungry brains are tied in with those long maturation times. That, incidentally, is another approach to being a post-discontent society, you just make people too stupid to be discontent with anything you have difficulty supplying. As we said, post-scarcity civilizations, to really qualify as what we mean by post-scarcity, need to be doing better than just covering the basic physiological needs at the bottom of Maslow's hierarchy. They need to hit the higher level issues like feelings of security, belonging, family, etc. Those are a lot easier to meet if folks are near animal intelligence or monomaniacal, and the very top of the pyramid includes things like self-actualization, that we tend to assume animals don't even have. A cow has feelings of security, belonging, and family too, possibly even more intensely than a human, it just has very little capacity to think of the future or remember the past. People ruminate on past losses, Cows ruminate on their breakfast. And people wonder why they are being fed that breakfast for free, cows do not. Making a civilization dumber is a pretty common trope in evil science fiction empires too, but also raises the question of what the point is. The valuable part of us is our brains, and has been long before we had combustion engines and computers. If you want raw brute force, you get an ox, not a human, and if you have the technology, you get an engine if you want sophistication and adaptation, you get a human, and if you want the most bang for your buck, you educate them. If you've got artificial intelligence so good you don't need those human attributes, then you don't need humans, and they exist because they control that artificial intelligence, and the purpose it's designed and built for is improving the human condition. Indeed that's what Landry was presumably made for in Star Trek, and where it messed up was in bad design, not basic principle. Humans are the reason you build machines, they do not exist to act as machines. They are replaceable by a race of rebellious androids or some alien civilization. They could be supplemented too, by including aliens, androids, or uplifted superintelligent animals as also people with machines served, but they exist to be the end-user of a production chain, not just one element of it. There's no reason to keep us around for that capacity, especially as we would be much worse humans if made stupid. You wouldn't want the population of your generation ship arriving at its destination without reasoning or problem-solving skills because it was easier for the AI. That might be a better way to look at things too, as the end-user of a production chain. Normally discussion of having artificial intelligence as rulers raises the objection that we need to make our own decisions and decide our own fate, But that's not really a leader's job anyway, and we tend to get most resentful of our leadership when they interfere in those. It doesn't really matter if that's a human or an AI, except that if you did make a very good AI, it probably would be way better at its job, like any machine tailor-made to its purpose, at least when prototyped and tested. That may also be part of the problem with them in sci-fi. It is usually some great act of desperation, by a collapsing society or some reckless visionary, that led to the machine overlord's creation, so presumably did not have time for prototyping and public scrutiny and revision. This always assumes the post-discontent society arose through desperation or deception though, but remember our weather predictor example. It predicts the weather well and issues advice on how to proceed. It probably only needs to be advice, too, since that avoids folks disobeying simply for the sake of disobedience. Though since we talked about the improbability of evolving immunity to control earlier, given that those who followed the machine's advice, assuming it was good advice, would prosper, then a trait for obedience to the machines would be an evolutionary advantage. Amusingly, if the machine later started to break down and make bad calls, something also common of machine overlords in sci-fi, then those with that trait would start to fare worse, and the habit of disobedience might become an evolutionary advantage again your machine overlord isn't necessarily your president or king, nor singular. You might have dozens or thousands of different AI running various fiefdoms, like the AI in charge of keeping the water supply clean, and another in charge of preventing forest fires, and they might get into conflicts over that, see our Machine Rebellion, and Paperclip Maximizer episodes, for some of the particularly peculiar brands of crazy a machine with a specific end goal might have. Indeed if you had all those local controllers, or advisors, all voluntarily and cheerfully made, you might end up with a genuine machine overlord, an overlord over those machines, human or machine itself, just to coordinate and arbitrate their areas of conflict. Critical notion though, a post-discontent society needs a primary purpose for why it's enforcing post-discontent lives, why it is basically brainwashing folks to be happy, same as a machine overlord needs a reason to keep humans around, Given that we are not useful for production if you've got intelligent machines and not useful for innovation if you have super-intelligent machines, we are usually limited to either it being the machine's created purpose to provide for mankind or it keeps us as pets, which is similar. Either way, it is only keeping us like cattle and post-discontent if it is badly programmed, at least if it is universal post-discontent. Just as we said of post-scarcity, post-discontent can be specific to particular needs. This gets us to our big one, and a way we might end up as post-discontent ourselves. We often say life would be great or peaceful if only such and such was less common, be it greed or violence or ignorance or so on. So a civilization might decide to be post-discontent about something specific, and again post-discontent here means twisting the intent of post-scarcity. Post-scarcity means you have no shortage of something to fulfill a human need, post-discontent means people don't care that there is one, We need sleep for instance, and might engineer future humans to lack that need, rather than cure insomnia and find ways to make sure everyone could enjoy a full night's sleep. They might do that, eliminating the desire for higher social status or greed or violent tendencies, or just moderating them in everyone or moderating them in those with the most severe cases, post-discontent light as it were. Now mind you, we already do this, encourage folks to control or outgrow more excessive displays of greed, ambition, or aggression, and indeed we usually consider these healthy in moderation and when channeled toward good ends. Societal opinions on that can shift with time too. It is not generally acceptable to punch someone for insulting you, no matter the insult, nowadays, but even when I was a kid it was generally felt that there were insults that merited sending someone to the dentist with their front teeth in a bag. So a future society might be even more opposed to that, or less for that matter too. If your medical technology is good enough and universally available or dirt cheap, even stabbing someone in the chest might just be considered rude. I mean if your civilization is pretty much full on cyborg, where even little kids are full of nanomachines that can repair tissue damage and mind augmentation that can shut off pain, then kids might chase each other around the playground with guns, real ones. In any event, if a civilization feels like some human trait is hindering it, it might well decide to go a bit beyond cultural discouragement to limit it, remove it, or deal with folks with a surplus of it. Now not every apparently slippery slope is slippery, nor do we always slip on them, but that does seem like the sort of thing that would get broader with time. It's also the sort of thing that doesn't have an evil ruling elite forcing on the masses, but would generally have the rulers be just as indoctrinated as everyone else, so there's no one to overthrow, and probably no central machine you could smash to just shut the effect off. Another indication of a brainwashed society is that if folks shake free from it, they are quite likely to report themselves, thinking of it as an illness. Even the ones who have their eyes opened, so to speak, might despair being the seen man in the world of the blind and pop into the brainwashing facility rather than have to spend their whole life afraid of being caught, and seeing no hope for convincing others to spare them, let alone join them. Remember, they are brainwashed, they do not think they are being cruel by reporting you, it is a kindness. And they certainly don't want to be unwashed, who wants an unwashed and dirty brain after all? Nor is evasion or deception likely to be easy. Sci-fi often shows those citizens as rather zombie-like and dumb, but as we've seen today, that's not the intended goal, since you only keep humans around for their brains anyway. And there's no reason to think they would be blithering blind fools just because they had some particular type of brainwashing, though of course courtailing ambition might make folks lazy, courtailing aggression might make them docile and non-confrontational, and so on. The human mind is a complex system that might be very subject to major side effects from minor tinkering. But if we're working on the premise that the folks who did it wanted a minimal impact on humans, and were careful and smart about the process, then they may be brainwashed but won't be stupid and thus will tend to work to perpetuate the system and do so pretty ably. Remember that the capacity to brainwash folks also implies a strong mastery of the mind and psychology too. The folks doing it are likely to be good at anticipating and recognizing undesirable side effects. So that's the key thing with post-discontent societies and machine overlords both, and they might often show up together. They might not be as bad as they seem in fiction, and probably are less likely to be extreme or sneak up on folks, and that's all good because if one does get in place, odds all good is going to stay in place and be near impossible to get rid of. It's also one of our better foamy paradox solutions as to where all the older civilizations are, because if you are ruling some planet or system this way, it doesn't behoove you to spread out and risk losing control or drawing attention from others. On the other hand, we keep emphasizing that these civilizations would not be stupid, and they probably believe emphatically in what they do and they also enjoyed the advantage of being able to throw vast efforts at goals without their citizens complaining, so they might go out on crusades to give everyone else the joy of joining their post-discontent society, or else. A fairly major point today was that machines can work for you to enhance productivity, but you could end up working for them instead and it can already feel that way sometimes with all the endless apps and tools designed to improve your workflow that often just seem to suck up whatever time they hypothetically save you with all the time invested into learning them or the next new thing. It's always good to improve your productivity, but where to focus your time to learn is no easy task. If you're looking for some suggestions and ideas for either evaluating your productivity or improving it, I'd recommend Thomas Frank's course Productivity Masterclass, Create a Custom System That Works, over on Skillshare. He offers a ton of great suggestions that are pretty universal, and you can find plenty more productivity suggestions or courses on creative work like writing and graphic design among Skillshare's catalog of thousands of classes for creative and curious folks looking to improve their skills or learn new ones. Perhaps you're trying to adjust to working in a new environment or just looking to pick up some new skill or hobby, Skillshare has a course for it, whether you're a beginner, a pro, a dabbler, or a master. Skillshare has thousands of classes on a wide variety of topics from experts to help you learn. Skillshare is an online learning community for creatives, where millions come together to take their next step in their creative journey, and members get unlimited access to thousands of inspiring classes, with hands-on projects and feedback from a community of millions. If you'd like to give it a try, the first 1,000 people to click the link in my episode description will get a free trial of Skillshare Premium so you can explore your creativity. Act now and start learning today. So this wraps us up for the day, but we will be back this Thursday for a look at Oceanic Aliens, and how life might evolve and develop technology without land to dwell on. Then the week after that we will ask not about life without land, but life without gravity, as we contemplate civilizations that have adapted to zero-gravity conditions, Then in two weeks we'll close out the month of January with our monthly livestream Q&A on Sunday, January 31st, 4pm Eastern Time. If you want alerts when those and other episodes come out, make sure to subscribe to the channel. If you'd like to help support future episodes, you can donate to us on Patreon or our website, IsaacArthur.net which are linked in the episode description below, along with all of our various social media forums, where you can get updates and chat with others about the concepts in the episodes and many other futuristic ideas. You can also follow us on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Spotify to get our audio-only versions of the show. Until next time, thanks for watching, and have a great week.